Hi everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rorkraut. And today we are celebrating a new month, Noir-vember. We'll be talking about two classic examples of film noir, in this case, both by the master filmmaker, Billy Wilder. We'll be talking about Double Indemnity from 1944 and Sunset Boulevard from 1950. Two classics. I can't wait to dig into both of these today. I don't think we've talked about him before, have we? No, like just in passing. We've just said, oh, one day we'll do a Billy Wilder episode, or we've mentioned him in mailbags or things like that as a favorite of ours, but we haven't talked about any of his films yet. Honestly, an episode with him would be just a behemoth to cover, so I'm glad we're talking about two of his best here, and that's Mm -hmm. how we're starting the conversation about him. Because, yeah, I love these movies. I may have seen them both when I took a class in college on Billy Wilder. It was like a partial retrospective on his life, his career, just incredible work. And I think I love him so much because he floats between genres and doesn't really follow a certain path. I think his history himself, like coming to America, fleeing Europe during World War II, And becoming a filmmaker, a Hollywood filmmaker through that, I think is just a fascinating story. And he had already made a few movies by the time he made Double Indemnity. And then a few years later with Sunset Boulevard, many classics along the way. And he's been lauded by the Academy a few times. Yes, but they're mostly nominations for wonderful works. So I think this is a good start. Yeah, definitely. And when I think of Billy Wilder, he really is one of my favorite filmmakers because of the women in his films. I feel like they're always strong and complex and they can be difficult and they have fantastic costumes. I just love watching these actresses in his roles, whether it's Barbara Stanwyck, who we'll talk about today, and Double Indemnity, and Ball of Fire, the great Gloria Swanson and Sunset Boulevard, Marilyn Monroe and Some Like It Hot. Shirley MacLaine in The Apartment. I mean, the list goes on and on, really, about the actresses that he works with and these performances that he gets out of his actors. But it's also the writing. I feel like he really is one of the sharpest, smartest screenwriters that we have in history. And last year, we talked a lot about directors who had won multiple times or who had been nominated multiple times. So he is a person with two Best Director wins, for The Last Weekend and for The Apartment. Obviously, we won't be talking about these today, but he's a very important figure in Oscar history, that's for sure. I know that people probably, if you're listening, you either have ideas of what film noir is, you might be very familiar with it, but if you're new to it, I thought that this explanation was really apt. So Robert Sklar, who was the chairperson of the Department of Cinema Studies at Tisch at NYU, He said specifically that classic film noir is marked by major thematic elements, a plot about a crime told from the point of view of the criminal, exploration of psychosexual themes, and a visually dark and claustrophobic framing with key lighting from sources within the mise-en-scene, casting strong shadows that both conceal and project characters' feelings. These are all things within film noir that I love about this genre. I love how these films are lit and how our characters move through the shadows. And the psychosexual themes are also really important, and I think they come up in fascinating ways in both Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard. People have debated over time 
on whether noir is a style or a genre. I think I see it as more of a style, but there are so many films that this term encapsulates. And we can mention a few more later on, but I think these elements made for, you know, this new type of filmmaking that we hadn't really seen before. It dated around the time that World War II was ending, so like the late 40s, this term came about. But it definitely includes movies from way before then as well. And it's also just a theory of like the women being pushed back into their role at home when the men came back from the war and you get this femme fatale character, these crimes, these really tense moments. I love the cinematography behind it all with that sharp lighting and these like really deep shadows. And then all of these things coming together, creating stories about betrayal, but also morality and fatalism and seeing these really intricate relationships between characters. I think in Double Indemnity, it's really cool to see how the two leads interact and how we feel about their actual relationship and chemistry. But it's also funny because Wilder has been asked about noir before and like, how he created these two movies specifically. I mean, he has Ace in the Hole and The Lost Weekend as well, which kind of fit into noir. But he was like, I didn't plan it this way. You know, I have ideas and I have this story and it's how we just wanted to create it. And he, like I said, floats between genres. He didn't say, okay, we're going to make a noir film here. And Mm -hmm. this is what we're going to do. And we're going to check off these boxes. He just had this story and made what he wanted to make. And I love that about him, too. He never felt defined by what the people in Hollywood wanted from him. But also he was like, "Okay, I'll make Sunset Boulevard and then let's go make some like it hot, something completely different Mm -hmm. and not back to back. But you know what I mean? Just like throughout his filmography, having fun with what he was doing because he could. Yeah. Well, With that, let's go right into Double Indemnity from 1944. This movie is about a slick salesman named Walter Neff who walks into the swank home of a dissatisfied housewife, Phyllis Dietrichson, where he intends to sell insurance, but he winds up becoming entangled with her in a far more sinister way. This, of course, was directed by Billy Wilder. It was written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, a name that probably is familiar to listeners if you're familiar with detective novels um, or thrillers from that time period. It stars Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. It was nominated for seven Oscars, but went home with a goose egg. It was nominated for picture, director, actors for Stanwyck, screenplay, cinematography, black and white, music, scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture, and sound recording. So you rewatched Double Indemnity for this episode. What did you think? How was your rewatch? I think these both have been multiple rewatches for me. So Mm -hmm. I'm very in tune with the story, the elements. It's really just experiencing everything all over again. And I think there is still some shock value. Like when certain things happen, you're still like on edge waiting to see them get out of it. But Wilder does such a good job with building the tension, making us fall in love in a way with these characters, these anti-heroes, and seeing it all dissolve as well. I love Barbara Stanwyck. It's funny that he hated the wig on her. Mm -hmm. I would like your opinions on that. (laughs) 
because he also <laughs> wanted to change it partway through filming and make it a blonde wig. And he's like, blondes have more fun. <laughs> but I don't hate it. I don't think it's off-putting. It adds like that housewife charm to her that I think we need as moviegoers too to kind of fool us into thinking that she's this innocent woman. I also love the framework of the movie. I think it works really well. But yeah, what do you think about the wig? I'm sure you love Barbara, but what else do you like about this movie? Wow, I'm put on the spot with my hottest take about this movie immediately, which is that I do not like the wig. (laughs) (laughs) I have never liked the wig. I have always had trouble with it, with the bangs and just the way that it looks on her. I mean, she is stunning, and I think it does, you know, make sense for the character. I just have truthfully always wanted a different hairstyle for her, even if I think that the wig on Phyllis and the sunglasses later on her are iconic. Love those sunglasses. Yeah, I have always wanted a different wig for her. So I agree with him there a little bit. But yeah, I I absolutely love Barbara Stanwyck in this movie. She's the person I think of when I think of this movie because, and it's by design, like Fred McMurray, Walter Neff, this character, he is just, to me, he's always just been so vanilla and boring as a character. And that's, that's on purpose. Like she's always out of his league and that's what makes it sort of fun. Just to go to the beginning of this movie, I love how it opens and we get that the shadow of the man on crutches and then we get this car like speeding down this LA street, you know, right as the sun is coming up, right early, early morning. And then we follow this character into this dark office building with all of these shadows. And this, of course, is Walter Neff and he's making this confession and we see that this is happening in real time. And the whole movie is going to take place in this flashback structure in a very similar way to Sunset Boulevard. But I love when they're in the office and we get the angles in that dark lighting Um, going into that building. You sort of see Walter in that moment, like, you know, he's going to descend into the worst parts of himself or that he already has, because this is essentially the end of the film. And the lighting here, I think it reminds me of German Expressionism, which is a major influence on film noir and on these filmmakers. But yeah, I love how it opens. And we already know at the beginning of the film that a murder has been committed. We know who did it, but we don't know how it happened or why. So I love that that is how the film starts. I feel like it's very Mm -hmm. creative and very fun. Yeah, I think it's a great opening for a movie. We've talked before about how we don't usually like narration or voiceover, Mm -hmm. but it sets everything up so quickly and you're intrigued to go into the flashback and learn about everything that happened. I think if you started the movie differently, I don't know, it just would have felt very different. I think knowing about the crime sets the movie up in a much darker way than it would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that is like a pinnacle of noir. So you have these ideas of what's to come. And I think you're inspecting like every moment and element in a different way too to try to investigate yourself like what's about to happen. Like you are the detective then trying to figure out like in this story, we don't really have a detective. I think Keys is that yes, as this insurance mm-hmm. salesman, this manager of Walters, but we start to look at the characters and the shots and the choices of the filmmakers too. 
And I think that's what makes it so fun. Yeah. And I think when we think about Walter and Phyllis and Keys, when we think about these characters, one thing that I love about this movie is that our characters are really smart. And the writing for those characters is so smart because when you have a film and you know it's about a murder or some sort of crime, trying to cover up that crime or how that crime goes wrong, any of these constructions in your plot, it's never as fun when one of the characters is you know, not cut out for it. But here, all of the characters are smart and that just shows you no matter what life i feel like this is another another thing of film noir it's that when characters think that everything is perfect and that they've done everything well and that everything has gone according to plan there're always little interruptions from life fate if you will that comes in and throws everything off i think in film noir too there is always this idea of predestination and that these characters are like fated for something worse when they succumb to greed or lust or cynicism. Like those are always, I think, key key points in film noir that come up and here is no exception. Mm-hmm. I really love the scene when we first meet Phyllis, of course, and she's literally wearing a towel. Like that is crazy for 1944. I love it. Mm-hmm. Like Barbara Stanwyck is just in her element and you know from that shot alone like when she is up on that landing at the top of the stairs and he is looking up at her the power balance is off from the beginning she is going to be in control this entire time no matter what he thinks billy wilder not only shows that like with the dialogue and with the performances from these actors but with the camera angles and where these characters are in relation to each other it's very clever and walter's done like anytime, mm-hmm. anytime she's moment. around him, it's over. That's what I love. Like immediately you can see his downfall. The writing here is so good too. It's sharp, it's witty. And here he goes, oh, I wanted to see her again close and without that silly staircase between us. So yeah, he is entranced. I think the way that she handles him here is probably how she reigns over her own husband. When we see him for the first time, He's like laying down slouched on a couch Mm -hmm. and she's even above him then. So she like really has power over all the men in this movie, which, yeah, makes for a way more fascinating character as a femme fatale. Like it's so fun to watch her and she's obviously a huge star. She was the highest paid actress this year. So she knew she could do it. And I think uh, audiences at that point knew her really well, too. And that helps with the story and the characterization. Yeah, definitely. And part of the thing about Barbara Stanwyck is that she wasn't a contract player. So she wasn't tied to like MGM or Warner Brothers, anything like that. She was a free agent. So she was able to take a lot of these roles that were a bit thornier, that were funnier, that were more dramatic. I mean, there are pros and cons to being contracted at the time with the studio. But here, like this is, I think, a positive. Like she could take roles that might have been too racy for other actresses or that like the studio wouldn't have allowed them to so yeah I love her here I feel like as a femme fatale she's perfect she subverts those gender norms that we see um, in a lot of films from the time she really is this mastermind character which I really appreciate and you talked about this a little bit earlier but One of the reasons why this film is so important and I think why film noir hit the nerve that it did was because the fears were different in 
post-war America, post-war Britain. There were themes of like conspiracy and violence within literature, within film. But a key theme is that men were afraid of women having more power than them. Because when they were away at war, the women at home weren't just taking care of the house anymore. They were out working. And there was this post-war paranoia that after the war, women were going to take over and take all of the men's power. So with film noir, like this fear comes up with these femme fatales, that they are the ones who have the control over men, that men are just these like cogs in the system and that they will always, always bend to the powers of women, that like they will be overcome by lust and fear and that women can trick them into like feeling things and thinking things and doing things mm-hmm. and, and i think that's so interesting and so it's so cool to think about why that came up at the time and i'm grateful i love a femme fatale character in my films and i love that men can be afraid of them it makes the movie so much more interesting too i think without that dynamic it would feel kind of boring mm-hmm. And I think an important thing too, right, is that he doesn't see the power that she has over him. He can sort of admit to it, but at the end of the day, because he is sort of this troubled, bureaucratic, anti-hero figure, and he sees himself as saving her. To him, she's damaged. She is like experiencing all of this hatred from her husband. She's a victim. And he puts himself in that traditional male role that we see in film, we see in literature again, like throughout time that like men have to save women. They have to save these victims or damsels in distress. And he's the one who has that attitude. And she that's how she sort of gets her hooks in him is that mm-hmm. like he believes that he's actually the one who has the power here to make her world better by getting this other man out of the picture when in reality like she is always the one who's making the calls who's making the decisions yeah and later in the film once the plot has thickened and they're just about to turn into their downfall she goes i just wanted to leave him she said you were the one to concoct the plot to murder him so they're also trying to figure out like who's actually to blame But that's in like a very key scene too at the end. Also parallels well with uh, Sunset Boulevard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I do think that, you know, this film, because we're dealing with insurance policies, like that can be a very dry subject matter. But I think Mm -hmm. that because of this, how smart the script is and because of how well written these characters are, even when we're getting into the nitty gritty of how insurance policies work and what a double indemnity clause really is, I think he still keeps you invested because there's a reason for all of this narrative exposition or detail. He's explaining it because he has to, because these are essential details for the story, but he keeps it engaging the entire time. Yeah, like when Walter starts leaving that voice message... And we learn about insurance and we see it on the door. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. (laughs) But the way they just slip in later on that there's a double indemnity clause. And I'm like, okay, wait, wait, what does this mean? Why is this so special? Like it's a very rare case in a loophole. And that also clicks in like, 
okay, this is like a really smart way. We're going to get at this one really specific instance. So I think the screenwriting here does a fantastic job in taking this one moment, spinning it and making it really, really interesting when yeah, it otherwise would be very dull, could have been just a very boring drama. Yeah, I think going back again to Walter's character, I do like that he's kind of dull. Like he's nothing special. But mm-hmm. to him, she makes him special. And that that's the interesting thing, I think, too, about this. Like, he's so conventional and just by the book. Think of his occupation as an insurance agent. Like, you can't, you can't get much more, I don't know, dull than that when you're thinking about a film character. He's not like some romantic guy. He's just a guy who's going through his very plain regular life when all of a sudden this woman like sets him on a different path and that I think is another thing that I love about film noir it's so cynical in that way and if you think about him like at the end when he says I killed him for the money and the woman I didn't get either pretty isn't it it ends on such a downbeat Mm -hmm. note for this character like he he doesn't get either of the things that he wanted really Mm -hmm. oh I love it And I think him being this dull character is so important, too. Like, he is indebted to his job. He's good at it. He's really good at it. Mm -hmm. And she not only convinces him to do this, but through that, convinces himself that he can outsmart the system. And he is good enough to be able to do that. And this works really well into the script of, you know, developing the drama, the story, how they're going to get rid of the husband, And that it does actually work. There is really only one big thing that happens that screws them up. But, I mean, everything goes according to their plan. Like, all of it worked. And that's what's so smart about the script itself is that, you know, there wasn't this big crux that made it fail. Everything worked. It was them afterwards contemplating the morality, how awful it was afterwards, Walter says, you know, I couldn't hear my footsteps. It was the footsteps of a dead man. Mm -hmm. And so they just couldn't take it anymore. But also the moment, you know, when they're in the car and the car won't start. I love Mm -hmm. that. You know, it's like, is this going to be the moment that it all goes awry? And no, it's not. But it's just one more moment that Wilder is like, I'm going to make you think. I'm going to make you feel. Yeah. I also love the scene when when Walter is disguised as her husband after they've already killed him and he's on the train and that one man is just like, mm-hmm. oh, what's your name? Like, let me offer you a cigar. Like, and he just, it's like a person like that who is just in the, however you look at it, the wrong or right place at the right time. Like, that is something that you have no control over. So I like mm-hmm. how he just like puts characters like that into it because when I watch that part every time I'm like oh my god can you imagine like you think you just pull something off like this and then this random guy is outside just wanting to chat Mm -hmm. with you yeah that's it (laughs) and that's the one moment that's something you can't plan for and you know he gets rid of him and he does a good job but when Keys brings him back into the office watching this movie you're just like oh my god what's gonna happen Mm -hmm. and the guy is really adamant that the man who was Mr. Dietrichson wasn't him and he gives Walter this really weird double take and it's like does he know 
it's just really cool little moments that again you are the detective you're trying to figure this out and you want the characters to figure it out but you also don't like there's a lot of push and pull going on with the screen yeah and and stanwick is so good in this movie and phyllis is such an icon truly like i i can't help but root for her when i watch this movie which i feel like billy wilder knows knows that by putting barbara Mm -hmm. stanwick in this role and just making her so icy and beautiful and captivating like you can't you can't help but want Mm -hmm. her to get away with it and the thing is is the great mystery of the film the another great success of the screenplay is that you know he's in trouble from the beginning but you don't know what happens to her so you do sort of wonder that as the film goes on right it's like how is she involved and what is her what's ultimately her fate in all of this like is this something where she'll be able to get away with it or is it something where she ultimately will be held accountable too Mm -hmm. so this movie was nominated for seven oscars which is a pretty good showing do you think anything was snubbed so here i think we can talk about nominations extra nominations we'd include and maybe categories where we think it should have been the winner the big winner was going my way Mm -hmm. how do you feel about that having won so many we talk about every year like what will the academy's attitude be this year based on whatever the current climate is And Going My Way is the perfect example of how the Academy can respond to something based on the time. Going My Way is a film that stars Bing Crosby, who was a major hit, a major box office draw. And this movie is also about religion. And Bing Crosby sings in it. And if it's 1944, we are still in the war. The Academy isn't going to give it to a film like Double Indemnity, which is dark and cynical and about failure and temptation and death. So I understand why that happened, but I don't think it should have because I love Double Indemnity and I would have given it the win in many categories but i think like that's sort of it makes sense why that happened in the way that it did yeah i mean it won basically an alternate big five there was no actress win but it won actor and supporting actor and then the other three so yeah i think having a movie like that will cause other movies like this really Mm -hmm. good movies to not go home with anything which is insane Yeah, and Going My Way and Double Indemnity were also both Paramount. So being from the same studio at the time, like it meant, you know, at the Oscars back then, it was like the MGM people would vote for whatever Louis B. Mayer told them to do. It's just how it worked. And like you would vote with your team, essentially. So if Paramount's priority was Going My Way, even people who might have worked on Double Indemnity could have voted for going my way because that studio was their home and on the other hand double indemnity was one of the top five nominated films for the night but wilson coming in number two had five wins so with 12 awards already covered doesn't leave much for the others to get in 
I feel like the hardest one for me is screenplay. Going my way, I've seen, but this screenplay is just brilliant. And again, the collaboration between Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, who is this prominent detective fiction author, it should have been recognized. And I don't know, going my way doesn't need picture, director, and screenplay. We could have we could have had a little bit of love for double indemnity there. Mm-hmm. My favorite story, though, about Billy Wilder at these Oscars is that apparently he said at the end, what the hell does the Academy Award mean, for God's sake? After all, Louise Reiner won it two times. Louise Reiner. That's just the best. Um, Louise Reiner won back-to-back Best Actress Oscars. And her second one, For the Good Earth, is my least favorite win in the category Mm. in history. So I appreciate that, that sentiment from him. It's a little salty that he didn't win, but it's great. Yeah, so picture and director, the only overlaps were for those three movies, Going My Way, Double Indemnity, and Wilson. So again, it wasn't winning. I would have loved to have seen an earlier win by Wilder. Anything from there just wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to be for Stanwyck. And then you have the other technical elements. I mean, cinematography is just incredible. Yes, I love the cinematography. We need to talk about that for a second because I think John F. Seitz does a fantastic job here with shadows. I specifically love how he uses lighting in the scenes with Phyllis in particular. She loves to turn off the lights in this movie. So if you watch her, you know, like in an office or in a room, she will be turning off the lights. We see this a couple of times and It gets darker in interior spaces as the movie progresses, showing that Walter is getting deeper and deeper into this moral mess. I love how the lighting here like deepens and enriches that. And if we think about, you know, dark lighting today, I think means a totally different thing. You have shows that are completely shot in darkness and not really backlit or frontlit by anything else. But that final scene we have between Walter and Phyllis is so dark, but the lighting on their faces heightens the mood in such a different way than we see now. So yeah, I think it really works. Sights will come up again with Sunset Boulevard, and I don't think it's a coincidence that he did both of these movies. The problem with this year at the Oscars, there were 11 films nominated for cinematography, black and white. (laughs) How does that happen? how all the rules change just all the time yeah i i don't get it but laura won another noir right so at least it went to noir that's from otto preminger i think you might be bored to tears by laura but you should check it out (laughs) i need to have an old hollywood renaissance very soon i think it's gonna happen good that's so exciting oh my god i love that i don't have any additional snubs Really, I think these categories are really good for it. But what I will say, I think I just want to talk about actress quickly with Barbara Stanwyck because she, for me, would have three best actress wins. She never won a single Oscar, which is crazy. Like She never won a competitive one. She would have won for me in 37 for Stella Dallas. She would have won for me in 41 for Ball of Fire. And she would have won for me here for Double Indemnity. So she would have three. But I do think that 
Ingrid Bergman is great in Gaslight. Like, that's a really good win. She also has multiple, but this wouldn't be one that I would take away for her necessarily. So even though I would have given it to Barbara Stanwyck, I do think that the Bergman Gaslight win is really good. I mean, this lineup, you have Bergman, Claudette Colbert, Betty Davis, Greer Garson, and Barbara Stanwyck. That's another crazy year of five. Yeah. I mean, icons Just at the, the time. the biggest of the biggest, yeah. And Betty Davis nominated for Mr. Skeffington and Greer Garson nominated for Mrs. Parkington. I bet <laughs> voters were confused back then about both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? Oh, it's really tricky. I think if it were this well-written and well-acted, it would be recognized still. My fear would be, where would the film end up? Because my I think I would be worried it would just go to streaming and sort of die there. Like, it would just be a Netflix movie or a Warner Brothers movie that went straight to HBO Max. But I do think audiences would still respond to it. I think the Academy might respond similarly, actually. And would think it was too dark and would Mm -hmm. give it nominations again, but would award the happier film, much like what happened last year with The Power of the Dog and Coda. Yeah, in one way, I think it's way too dark. But on the other hand, I also feel like they would have used the original ending from the book from Kane's novel, which is where we see Walter in a gas chamber and... You know, he's on like death row and he's about to be killed for what he's done. And Wilder took it out. You know, he found this much smarter ending with him being held by Keys and Keys lighting his cigarette after the entire movie of it being the opposite. It's just such a smarter way. And we hear the sirens in the background. So I think taking Mm -hmm. it this step further is just so superfluous. But I mean, even if it wasn't added today... I still don't think it would have been as recognized by the Academy. No, it didn't win, but I don't think it gets seven nominations. Uh, yeah, I can sort of see. I can see that too. I didn't know that about the ending, and I really hate that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they recreated this entire gas chamber, this like really well-known one, and then they just scrapped the entire scene. I mean, like good for them for going mm-hmm. through it and realizing, but. Yeah. Yeah, it's just way too in your face. It was really a moment to bring Keys on top and like make him the good guy. But yeah, we didn't need that. The other nomination I would give it is costume design for Edith Head. I love all of Barbara Stanwyck's costumes in this movie, even the mm-hmm. design of her towel. So the shoes in particular, <laughs> though, are absolutely great. And the sunglasses that she wears when they're in the grocery store just Mm -hmm. perfect yeah i love how she's shot over the shelves Mm -hmm. and those sunglasses just feel like perched on her face and they're so elegant oh i love that look of her yes she's being creepy sneaking around this grocery store i mean doing your dirty work Mm -hmm. in a grocery store is also funny (laughs) yeah it is that taps into that like suburban anxiety that comes up later I think a lot in the 50s in films but in the 40s as well that like feeling of being trapped in a suburban Mm -hmm. environment and that people there like ordinary people there are the ones who can also know your secrets and be Mm -hmm. agents of your downfall so if you could give this movie one Oscar what would it be I would give it to Wilder and Chandler for screenplay I think it's 
one of the best elements of the movie. There are a few you could probably award here, but it's what brings me back. Yes, it's also the visuals, but it's the story, it's the framing, it's how we meet these characters and how we see them devolve into madness and, you know, their final moments together and how this like blossoming love, this affair between them really doesn't work out. What would you give it? So I would give Barbara Stanwyck Best Actress. The script would be my second choice. I mean, even Billy Wilder for director. I think this film, for me, it's a a five-star film. I love it. I return to it frequently. But Barbara Stanwyck, for me, like her performance as Phyllis Dietrichson is what brings me back to this movie. I feel like she is the quintessential femme fatale. And she just brings so much to this performance. Her lack of emotion, her ways that she just communicates with her eyes. But this character is just so well-developed, too. My favorite line is when Lola Dietrichson, the daughter, says two days before he fell off that train, what was Phyllis doing? She was in her room in front of a mirror with a black hat on and pinning a veil to it, as if she couldn't wait to see how she would look in mourning. It's a great line, but it also, Mm -hmm. I feel like Barbara Stanwyck, just in this movie perfectly embodies that she had the performance is just so well modulated and yeah she's one of the greats so she's my winner okay so let's get into sunset boulevard from 1950 another little movie here not important at all (laughs) tiny it's about an aging silent film queen who refuses to accept that her stardom has ended she hires a young screenwriter to help her set up her movie comeback The screenwriter believes he can manipulate her, but he soon finds out he's wrong. The screenwriter's ambivalence about their relationship and her unwillingness to let go leads to a situation of violence, madness, and death. This was again directed by Billy Wilder and also written by him, Charles Brackett, and D.M. Marshman Jr. It stars Gloria Swanson, William Holden, Eric von Stroheim, and Nancy Olson. It won three Oscars for Best Writing, Story, and Screenplay, art direction, set decoration, black and white, and music scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture. It was nominated for eight others for picture, director, actress for Swanson, actor for Holden, supporting actor for Von Stroheim, and supporting actress for Olsen, cinematography, black and white, and film editing. I guess starting off, maybe this is a bad question, but do you like Double Indemnity or Sunset Boulevard more? Sunset Boulevard. I really love both and think they're incredibly well made. But to me, Sunset Boulevard is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's one of the movies that I just have an incredibly sentimental relationship with because it's one of the films that got me into classic Hollywood films. I watched Mm -hmm. this for the first time when I was 10 years old. I got it at the library and I was just obsessed with it. A teacher recommended it to me. I was like a weird kid, I guess, but I was already just really interested in history and glamour and actresses and everything from the past. And it is one of the greatest movies ever made about Hollywood. The screenplay is incredible and it is so biting and so specific about creating these two very distinct worlds at a time when Billy Wilder decided it was time for Hollywood to look inward, to look at itself. And we get this like fantastic old silent film era that 
Norma Desmond has preserved in her mansion. Mm -hmm. And this new sort of struggling era of like, are you motivated like extrinsically by money or are you motivated intrinsically by art and this desire to create something with our Joe character? So I, I love that. I love the how brilliant the writing is. The performances are great. And it just, it really, really holds up. So while I love Double Indemnity 2, Sunset Boulevard is it's the mm-hmm. best. What about you? I would probably have to choose Sunset Boulevard 2. I think if someone were to ask me, like, what's your favorite Billy Wilder film or which one do you recommend the most? It has to be Sunset Boulevard. It's the one that always comes to mind over the apartment, over Double Indemnity, Ace in the Hole. The Lost Weekend, Some Like It Hot might be a close second or third, but I think this movie just encapsulates so well what Wilder has done throughout multiple of his movies. It's the one film on the AFI's best 100 American films. You know, it looks at Hollywood, at old Hollywood. It also looks at, you know, the silent era of films through Norma, through her character that she can't leave it. And again, a screenplay that's really smart. We start off knowing that the main character, the narrator, is dead in a pool. Mm -hmm. So immediately we're triggered, like, how did this happen? What happened? Who killed him? And then going through, like, learning about this crime sort of that Joe is involved in and being introduced to this house in such a bizarre way. We have this funeral for a monkey. Yeah. So meeting the characters in this way, it's like, what the hell are we getting into? And then finally Norma comes on and she's trying to live in her former glory, writing this incredible script and, you know, the innards of Hollywood going to the set, seeing Mr. DeMille. And it weaves so well through these different worlds And then briefly with the cinematography, I think, you know, we have an amazing final shot. Again, we have this really stark lighting throughout this gothic mansion and all of these corners that feel hidden with surprises. So I think that's another intriguing element that always keeps us on our toes as viewers in this world that we will never understand. I agree. So John Upsites, he does a fantastic job with shadows with lighting and creating, again, this very insulated world that Norma Desmond is a part of and that Joe Gillis becomes a part of as well. And I love the setup. Like you mentioned, you know, it's similar to Double Indemnity in that we start at the end, but here we have a dead man narrating, which is just, it's such a cool choice because it already throws you off. You you feel like you're in sort of this limbo or bardo of sorts. God. That's, I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doing that. <laughs> we'll talk about that movie soon. But not only do you know that this character has died from the beginning, you're hearing the words of a dead man. Like he's recounting his story. So it just, it feels so bizarre and just automatically throws you off balance, which I really love. And Mm -hmm. the first 10 minutes of the screenplay does an excellent job of establishing who Joe Gillis is as a character and how much he wants money and how much he believes that money will solve his problems. 
And he's just done trying to be this great screenwriter. He just wants to make money. He's at that point. And I think we've all sort of been there where we're just like, fine, I'll I'll take a job I don't like because I need health insurance. Like I need to like make money and live where I want to live. Like that kind of thing. I feel like that's it's very relatable for this character, especially if we're thinking about like 1950, we're further post-war. Like what are these characters motivations and I feel like they establish his very clearly but what's so interesting of course then is that by establishing that he just wants money of course he's going to see this old house see this opulence that almost seems to exist from another time see that glamour and be drawn into it even more than a person who you know did might not care about money that makes him much more susceptible to being pulled into Norma's world and that dream of wealth for the character. I don't know why he denies all of her financial advances. I guess he seems indebted to her in that way and she starts to come on to him and that's really not what he wants. But like when she says, oh, I'm going to pay for this and that in your car and your apartment mm-hmm. for, you know, three months and... I'm going to buy you nice suits. He like is very adamant to deny all of that. And if he needs the money, why is he so quick to say no? Because I don't know if I would be. (laughs) I know. I think I might be like, yeah, sure. Like Norma. Like she's like, you need your tails for New Year's Eve. And it's like suits are not cheap, especially back then. If they're fitted well, when he shows up wearing He's that crazy. suit and at, when <laughs> at he leaves party. New Year's and his friend is like, where, what are you wearing? Like, where did you get that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because I do think he he has to still in the script, like represent this separate world while he doesn't really seem to be able to understand like the truth of who this character is of Norma. Yeah, he's still entranced by that world a bit, but he also feels probably like he can't get in too deep right away. But yeah, no, I I absolutely would have taken her up on the money. I would have loved to hang out with her. You know me. Can you imagine if I stumbled upon her like an aging film star? I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to disappear from my friends and just spend time with you at your pool all day and talk about your former glory. So I think the house is really smart. In establishing this other world, Mm -hmm. he goes in this really long driveway, sees this rundown garage, a pool that's empty, has rats in the bottom of it, and he goes up to this house, this beautiful, elegant, but also dark mansion that looks like a house that had been built a long, long time ago. But you go inside and it's like very, very dark. There are no windows And there are so many different rooms, this great staircase, but also everything is just so elegantly designed and there's so much, it's kind of just junk everywhere. Like something on the Great British Bake Off, if they saw this, (laughs) these house, the interiors, they would just say like, overdone, it's messy, there's too much going on. And I think that's, that happened on a recent episode. (laughs) Norma Desmond is not Star Baker. She really isn't. Or she was at one time and she still thinks she is. She really wants to come back on another season. But it's that vibe that Joe really doesn't understand. 
Right. And we never really do either. So I think it's really cool to see him interact in this world mm-hmm. because he never wants to stay in it. And he never becomes a part of it, too. He kind of feels like an in-betweener. And that, again, is what helps in putting the audience in his shoes. A thing about the house as well is that it is it is so old. It is decaying a little bit. But for Norma, this is the place where she still reigns. Like, she still can be famous and glamorous and can still live in that old world where she was the silent film star. Also worth noting, the Gloria Swanson was also a silent film star. Um, There are a lot of meta aspects to Mm -hmm. this film. Cecil B. DeMille plays himself. Hedda Hopper plays herself. Eric von Stroheim, who plays Max, like he actually was a silent film director. So there's so much here that Billy Wilder is putting in to comment on this era and how it's a thing of the past. But what I also love about this house is that it's, I mean, I just, I love it purely as a feat of production design and construction and decoration, but it's also, it feels like a metaphor for her mind. Mm -hmm. Nothing else is allowed in. This is where, like, she lives in her own disillusionment throughout the film. She is a character who never sees the truth, which I think is fascinating. Even though Joe is able to see the truth and see who Norma is and see what's happening eventually. She's never able to see that even at the very end. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that is part of the brilliance of the character of Gloria Swanson's performance and just how Billy Wilder, how he wanted to depict Hollywood, how dangerous fame could be, how tragic it could be while also being incredibly glamorous i feel like that is just it's it's really really well done and what makes it such a brilliant film to me this movie was originally pitched as a comedy and monty clift was our hero i'm glad you brought this up totally changes the movie obviously but i think even with the casting does too Mm -hmm. and wilder was obsessed with a place in the sun but Also with Swanson, there are so many cool meta aspects. But here, Swanson almost declined the movie because Paramount wanted a screen test from her, which seems like very of that era. And also that she didn't want to be made older, like 10 years older as a 60-year-old because she was 50 at the time. So I think all of those elements, I don't know how this would have worked as a comedy. Yeah, there are black comic moments in it. But yeah, I I don't know. I think Monty Clift is fascinating to think about instead of William Holden. I think it's a completely different movie with him, actually, mm-hmm. because he does, I think, appear younger. And the thing about William Holden is he he's a good looking guy, but he does have that everyman quality that I think makes the script feel like this could happen to any man who just... It happened to be living or working in LA at the mm-hmm. time. He might be a little too movie star handsome to be a screenwriter. That can be another conversation, but he isn't as, I don't know, like model beautiful as Montgomery Clift or like young in that way. So I feel like 
for me, the age difference in this movie doesn't feel as stark as maybe they want it to seem when I'm watching it. It's not an issue I have with the movie at all. I love the movie, like I mentioned, but it doesn't feel, I think, as great as maybe they initially intended it to because William Holden does seem a bit more mature and a bit older. And Mm -hmm. I mean, Gloria Swanson looks great. And being only 50 here, like she's not some old woman. Like they probably, the studio probably wanted her to seem. Holden does have a more hardened appearance too, which helps. I don't see the age difference as an issue either. You definitely see it come into play though. Like when she starts to make advances on him. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's an issue with it. And I think we really could go, you know, scene by scene, line by line through this movie. There's so much, I feel like that I love about it, but what are some of your favorite scenes in the movie? I guess a notable one is when he's editing the script for her. And again, there's some voiceover happening, but he throws out a page and she sees him do that and comes over and she's like, what did you just throw out? (laughs) And he explains that like, you know, the editing would be better if you cut the scene. And she goes, what less me that's what they want you know i have all my fan letters she reiterates over and over and over again about these letters that max has fabricated to further her disillusionment with her stardom and what she thinks people on the outside in hollywood think of her still and they don't except for those older actors like we see when she's on the set that's another favorite moment but with this scene, she makes him put it back in. So having full control, you know, he, Joe is basically not doing much. He's just going through it. And at that point, you know that the script that she's making can't be good. Yeah. It's going to be way over the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love also when Norma is going through all of these beauty treatments and she has this new beauty regimen and she's getting ready to make her comeback because I feel like for 1950 to show that to show what women in particular have to like the work that they have to put in to make themselves like look camera ready in any I mean like this her regimen looks like not that different really from what I do before I go to bed at night honestly (laughs) but back then I mean it's like that was a big deal I think for them to show that actually for them to show her going through all of those treatments and I do really like seeing her and her commitment there I also love the scene by the pool because for a couple of reasons one I like that he is the one who is shirtless and she's just like sitting out by the pool with her hat on and her sunglasses And I have to mention how much I love when Norma talks about astrology because it Mm -hmm. is so funny for this character. Like when she says in particular, DeMille is a Leo, I'm Scorpio, Mars has been transiting Jupiter. It's just so, it's so funny. Are Scorpios and Sag really friends? So I (laughs) I can't believe I'm doing this right now because I did have a note about this. Because of course, earlier Norma mentions that Joe, when Joe shares his birthday, that he's a Sagittarius and she says, I like Sagittarians. And Mm -hmm. they actually do attract each other. We're getting into like woo-woo stuff here. I'm sorry for listeners. But the Scorpio-Sagittarius connection can be quite strong. 
Sagittarius is a fire sign, which definitely draws Scorpio in. Scorpios are very private, so it makes sense that she would be living in this big mansion and, you know, sort of retreating into herself. But she would obviously be drawn to a younger fire man. And Sagittarians are also, like, very go with the flow and fun and lively and will sort of roll with it. So it Mm -hmm. makes sense that Joe would just kind of go along with whatever Norma wanted to do. And he's just in this house. And Scorpio, even though it's a water sign, they are of the water signs the most like a fire sign. They do have a fierceness and a strength to them that I think would make them really drawn to each other. So, but at the same time, they're not incredibly compatible. I think Sagittarians would be pushed away by Scorpio's dark intense energy that's all i will say about that before i sound too kooky i mean that does fit with their characters too <laughs> it really does so it's funny like how much that works mm-hmm. i don't know about enough about cecil b DeMille to say if he seems like a leo or not but she would know better than me so yeah seeing DeMille on set so we're going to hollywood it's really the only places we see norma is her house in her car on the way to the studio and then at the studio. So she very much lives in this world she thinks she lives in. It's very jarring when you do see her leave her house, I think. It's quite shocking. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, she she exists outside of this world. But she gets to set and really only the older actors or older workers remember her. There's the man at the security booth and they say, oh, you need a pass. And then he comes in and says, oh, my God, it's Norma Desmond. Let her in. Like, she has mm-hmm. full reign. So they get back. And then when she's in the studio, they're shooting some other movie. And Cecil B. DeMille says, oh, sit in my chair. And then you have the old worker who remembers her. And he shines the light on her, the spotlight. And that is literally the moment she has been waiting for. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, all of these other actors are saying, oh, my God, it's Norma Desmond. She's back. And they all crowd her like that is just such a surreal moment to see because that's what she is imagining in her head. And that's the best way, the only way to her that this moment could have gone. But she is disillusioned. They only called her because they wanted her car and not her. And DeMille at this point is just so pissed that he says, we're done. I'll buy you five new cars, whatever. Like, we are not dealing with her ever again. It's crazy, like, how drastically different she is imagining things and how reality really is. Yeah, and I mean, she she really is completely out of touch with reality and lives in her own world. But at the same time, why I like this scene is because it also shows that you can think of it as also a metaphor for how Hollywood is changing. And if you are stuck in the past, things are going to move on without you, whether you like it or not. Norma, she is stuck in this this time when like silent film prevailed. Like she makes Joe watch her films mm-hmm. with her and she says we didn't need dialogue. We had faces. And she mentions like the only other face besides hers that can basically pull it off is Greta Garbo's. So I love that she brings in like a real, real person who mm-hmm. actually did make the transition from silence to talkies in a very big way in Garbo. And 
she doesn't want to move on from that. She sees that as the peak of cinema. And if we think about Joe, then he is willing to like play along with Norma and to be a part of this world. But the second he meets Betty and, and starts working with her on this new script, that's when he is really ready to abandon Norma. He's ready to sell out or like leave her behind in the same way that the studios will. They will always be moving on to mm-hmm. the next big thing. And I, and I do think there is, it, it again also shows this fear of change that exists within Hollywood at the time. You know, one of my, my favorite things that I have read about this movie was that Mayer, Louis B. Mayer, hated this film. He said after he attended the screening of it, he called Billy Wilder a bastard and said he should be tarred and feathered and run out of town because of how he depicted Hollywood. And of course, like he is another person who had to fear change because in 1950, things were about to change again. Like that old studio system wasn't going to last much longer. And the way that films were made, it was just right around the corner for him. I do think the New Year's Eve party, even though it's really sad, is a good scene in the movie because that is, I think, the first time when we really see that Norma is absolutely delusional and Joe also starts to see it. But even though that is when when he decides he has to leave, he still ends up going back to her on multiple mm-hmm. occasions. I mean, yeah, every time that he threatens to leave, she gets upset. And at this moment, she tries to commit suicide. And so Joe is already gone. But once he hears what had happened, he runs back to her. And there's a great shot of them on her bed at that moment. But it just shows you how insecure she is, how much she probably just won't let herself believe about this world that she doesn't live in. So then from there, we finally get Norma shooting him because he threatens to leave again. And so once we see that the police are coming, the paparazzi are coming, all the reporters and she hears that, you know, the cameras have arrived. It's just the complete downfall that we see. She is completely turned. There's no going back. The cops are in her room. Like, there are so many signs that this is not good, but she doesn't see any of them. She's ready for her movie. She starts putting on her makeup, and they're like, well, at least we can get her downstairs this way. Mm-hmm. So they play into it, and... I love how she just slowly glides down the stairwell. We get that final line, that incredible final shot of Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. And she just walks towards the camera and then fade to black from these actual cameras, these bright lights on her face. But in that moment, she's also like so grotesque. And she's still very much like that quote says, using her face like that's all she knows. And it's such a dark moment there. Again, this movie doesn't happen on any happy lines. Mm -hmm. Joe is dead. She's going to prison. (laughs) (laughs) It is very morose, but it's also so poignant and so sharp. I'm really surprised that Ryan Murphy hasn't tried to make like a Norma Desmond in prison miniseries. (laughs) (laughs) Like what happened to Norma after... The lights stopped flashing. Oh, my God. 
wow, I hate that idea. But yeah, no, she is using her face in that moment. She is performing in the way that she did in her silent films in the way that she talked about, but it is so much more heightened and she's not, again, she's really not using dialogue much like her silent films until that final line, which I think is very, very cool. And I love how this ending, you know, Joe, he decides it's time for him to leave. Like he tells Betty, he doesn't believe he's good enough for her and he's going to leave Hollywood altogether, but he decided one too many times that he was going to stay with Norma. So he couldn't get out of that because of his own bad decisions. And when he falls into that pool, like you have to, because of the way that the film opens and because of the conventions of film noir in a way, you have to accept that that was his fate and that was always where he was going to end up. And Billy Wilder actually described this film as a film about a man who wanted a pool got a pool and ultimately drowned. And I feel like that's some great dark irony. He pursues like his dream of going to Hollywood to be this famous or wealthy screenwriter and to make money. But ultimately he ends up dying in that pool that he probably thought he mm-hmm. could acquire with his money one day. Dream. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Just great it's screenwriting. Mm hmm. Of course, like time has to stop for this character at the place where Norma stopped time herself. That's what she tried to do in that house. And that's what she did for him. Very, very dark, but also beautiful. Like, I love this ending. It is so well shot and scary. It's terrifying. It always, when I watched this as a kid, I remember too, like being so engrossed in the ending because I thought it was, I thought she was really scary in this moment. I remember thinking that Mm -hmm. just being very drawn to her as this sad character. Yes. But I don't think I got that part until much later. I always thought of her as this almost like villainous woman at that part. Yeah. These themes are so relatable, but then also such a mirror onto Hollywood. And it's also just a timeless story. Mm -hmm. Like these emotions these moments of being scared for the future not knowing what's next knowing that you have to change but being scared to it's one that sticks with you and i think it does more so than double indemnity and that's why i chose it over that yeah i think while both are great films this one really ends in with a gut punch it's it's so good so then getting into oscar stuff do you think anything was snubbed This was three wins, eight other noms, so it's a lot showing up at the Oscars, but either snubs that way or if you thought something else should have won. Well, nominations-wise, I mean, 11, that's a a really big haul, especially Mm -hmm. for a movie that is so controversial, I think, to studio execs at the time. With movies about Hollywood making fun of itself, it's always a gamble. It's like, well, Hollywood embrace this because they want to be on the right side of that commentary or will they be so offended by it that it's just not for them and they're not going to recognize it so i think that is part of the reason why i get only one three and was nominated for eight others but this is a major major year at the oscars we talked about 1950 earlier this year when we talked about all about eve so this is the same year and there we have another version of a story about stardom and about the sort of like changing of the guard of 
who is popular and about women who are aging and and how people see them that way. Like, do they want to replace them with a younger model? Like, I feel like that is sometimes like that is a theme that comes up in All About Eve throughout that movie. And that it's so hard because for me, it's like looking at All About Eve winning that year, all of its awards that it won. It's like I'm not going to take away any of All About Eve's Oscars like supporting mm-hmm. actor going to George Sanders. I'm always going to love that win more than Eric von Stroheim's win, even though I do, I think he's great as Max. And with art direction, I think that that's a really good win for Sunset Boulevard. I'm very happy it pulled that one out because that is definitely mm-hmm. one of the first things that comes to mind when I think about it. Cinematography going to the third man. Amazing win. Another great movie. One of my all-time favorites. Another noir, too. King Solomon's Minds for Film Editing. I don't know about that. But the big ones, we'll get to Gloria Swanson in a minute. But for picture and director, I could see a split here. I feel like I would be okay if it was all about Eve picture, Billy Wilder director. But I do like all about Eve's picture win. I think I would keep it there. I am very happy though. And I do think this question came up to us on a previous episode. I think it was on the All About Eve episode, but I do think 1950 having All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard as the two screenplay winners, the Academy today could never make a choice that great. (laughs) Yeah, it does say a lot about the time, the year, these stories. I love those two wins. Director wasn't happening for Wilder, so it's just kind of sad. Similar to the double indemnity year, like it just wasn't going to happen. But the fact that we had all four acting categories covered is wild. Yeah, definitely. Especially, I think, Nancy Olsen getting in for Betty, I wouldn't have necessarily Mm -hmm. expected that. Not at all. That doesn't happen today, for sure. She does actually feel like one of those sort of Klingon nominations that happened like when Jesse Plemons got in last year for the power of the dog or like when Marina de Tavera got in for Roma like when a movie is really well liked and you see a supporting actor just come along for the ride sort of and get recognized there it does feel I think similar to that and how do you think today's academy would receive this movie I don't think it does as well but I feel like there is a world where it's a smaller picture And it hits a lot of the right chords with different guilds and people see it as this like really dark image of what Hollywood is, what it used to be, where it's going. So I feel like it could still show up in a bunch of places, but I don't think with acting, I don't think supporting actors happens. I don't think actor happens. I feel like today we would need something showier or darker. I think actors definitely happens, and I think Strawheim does a great job, but it those are just such small roles. I feel like if we're updating it, you need a really strong performer and maybe one that I could feel like would get snubbed today. That's my worry. Okay, wait, though. If we made it today, who would you cast in the parts? Oh, God. <laughs> you have me thinking now. Like, who who is the William Holden character? Like Bradley Cooper? Wow. He he might be like a little old for it now, I guess. Yeah. But I feel like if you made this like a couple of years ago, he definitely fits the mold for sure. 
if it has that like stars born licorice pizza edge to him <laughs> not like silver linings he has to have some of that gruff oh yeah i think now i'm like i'm set on this being like bradley cooper and glenn close <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we are getting this with Glenn. Well, yes. that's what, like, it's impossible <laughs> to think of anyone other than Gloria Swanson or Glenn Close in the part because of the the stage version and this rumored right. film. But there are some good options, though. But I'll say, I'll say Glenn, and I do like Bradley Cooper in the William Holden part. My mind always goes to Adam Driver first, but I don't think he's right for it. He's a little too weird. A little too, yeah, like, goofy. I get the vibe. I think that's right. And he looks a little younger, too, which would work. Currently, there are no cast members noted on the Sunset Boulevard IMDb except for Glenn. Is that happening? Sad. <laughs> it probably shouldn't. I mean, that's that's the thing. It just it shouldn't be remade. I would be worried they would put Harry Styles in the William Holden part. Oh, God. How do you think today's Academy would receive it? I think they would receive it pretty well, actually. Like, if it were made in the same way, if it were just as biting of a commentary like this, I think the script is just too good to pass up. I mean, some of these lines in this movie are just incredible. And it's it's mm-hmm. not just about the lines, but the way that these characters are written. I feel like it still would strike a chord with Hollywood. And I do feel like, like I said earlier, Academy voters do like being cool or like voting for the movie that's critiquing them in a way. Um, so mm-hmm. I could, I could still see them going for it. I think especially as an act, best actress play for sure. It's, it would be massive. I think it's a, it's a type of role that any actress would want. Oh yeah, totally. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? So on our, all about Eve episode. I talked about Betty Davis and I say how I always change my mind of who would win best actress that year. Watching this movie though really did solidify why for the most part <laughs> I've always said it should be Gloria Swanson and I think now I really am going to stick with that answer because when I think of this movie, yes, like there are many reasons why it's a classic. That script, the art direction, the direction, there's so much to it, so much that goes into it. Mm -hmm. But this movie does not stick in that early old Hollywood fan brain that I had without Gloria Swanson. This performance from her is really just, it's one of the reasons why I got into old Hollywood and why I love classic Hollywood actresses. And I feel like she just, she really brings everything that she knows from her work in the silent era here and creates this character who is so dynamic and who is so realized in every single scene. I feel like she's perfect. And at the end, it's just, it's a show-stopping performance that I think makes me confident enough to say that I think she should have won Best Actress in 1950. I feel like with this question, we don't, usually look at the actual year i know but it's impossible not to for this year because this is such a big best actress year and i feel like i can't remember because i never remember what i say on the (laughs) for the what oscar i would give it but i think for all about eve i think i gave betty davis the oscar probably so i mean the women really are in these films back then especially like they're just so embraced it's sort of strange because it's almost like back then 
these films showcased women in a stronger way than a lot of the films that we get now that are popular. It's something that I do really like about the era. And thinking about just the film, not thinking about the race, I still think that Gloria Swanson really is the one who makes everything fit together and makes everything click into place for me. Okay. I feel like I probably gave it to Betty Davis too. So I'm not conflicted in that way because I'm going to give it to Billy Wilder for director. I think a big one, We since we're not doing picture, it would allow for a split if we were actually looking at the race. And I think that would have totally been fine. Mm-hmm. But he makes so many important choices. One, that reflects Hollywood at the time. But two, that shows who he is himself as a filmmaker. He was daring. He was able to capture so many sides to these lives of these characters. And I think he finds a way to do that. And in incorporating all of these complex themes really, really well. I think that's really hard to do. And we see a lot of flops today because they can't do that right. But he does it so well. I mean, from those little details, like there are no locks on the doors and you see the holes through the doors to that funeral we see in the very beginning. Again, the framing really works here is repeating it. I could see how some like might find that boring, but... I think it works for the story. It makes us really intrigued as viewers. And like actually seeing that body in the pool was totally new. I don't think as a viewer, we know that Walter is shot. So that's more of a surprise. But seeing Joe dead and realizing that you're hearing this deceased human speaking to us is also really fascinating, feels fresh. So everything that Wilder did... Like I said earlier, I wish he would have gotten another win, but I think he deserves it. I think that's a great answer. I'm like, oh, did I pick the wrong thing? But no, I'm going to I'm gonna stick with, <laughs> stick with Gloria. It. I can't change it. So I'm sure we'll cover more of Wilder in the future. We have the apartment year. We're doing that as a rewind for sure. But there's so many others. I'm glad we started with these two that, yes, are alike in ways, but... I love how Wilder distinguishes them, too. And these characters, these dark noir films that make really important critiques on society, on Hollywood, on relationships and love and betrayal. It's so fascinating, and it's why I return to them time and time again. Yeah, I think for anyone looking to like get your start with old Hollywood films, or if you're looking to dip into a new genre or style, I feel like these two films, Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard, are a great place to start. And Billy Wilder, as a filmmaker, is, I feel like, a great place to start. He has so many good films, and I think these two are just a snapshot. We've talked for a while about them today. Could definitely cover more, but I think you really can't go wrong with any of his filmography. And I'm excited to cover more of his films in the future. We've talked about the Maltese Falcon before. Gilmore Girls, but thriller, famously you said. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Had to bring it up. It was too good. And also Suspicion from Hitchcock, but there are others we've mentioned. The Letter by William Wyler, Mildred Pierce with Joan Crawford, Lots of other noir films that I think are great entries. The Big Sleep, that's another Raymond Chandler adaptation. The Blue Dahlia, Kiss Me Deadly. And then Orson Welles, who loved that genre style too. Touch of Evil, and then 
he was in the third man so i mean citizen kane obviously but lots of ways to get involved into noir and there's also a good series on the criterion channel that you can always check out definitely that's a great recommendation and next time on oscar wilds will be in the present, we will be talking about some recent releases for award season coming up, talking about potential, but also just reviewing these films. So we have on the docket Martin McDonough's new film, The Banshees of Inisherin, All Quiet on the Western Front, the Edward Berger adaptation that is on Netflix now, and Alejandro Gonzalez Inurritu's new film, Bardo, which you and I both saw together at the Paris Theater. So I'm excited to talk about these and get into some new releases as we head into award season. It is getting here very soon. As much as I feel like Norma and my, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking of myself and my dilapidated mansion in my own little world with old movies, I suppose it's time to branch out and think about new movies and the upcoming Oscars. Yeah, I'm looking forward to all these movies. I've seen some of them. Netflix has had a lot of releases lately too so excited to check some of those out and we'll be covering all of that their potential everything we do here on Oscar Wilde with those and we'll have more of these episodes coming throughout the season just because we feel like there are so many to cover Mm -hmm. so we'll we'll do some more check-ins throughout November and December with all of those coming. So thank you all for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you liked our show, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod. Also, we have some content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.